Um, can we, for instance, look at connections between how often somebody speaks as an MP and whether they get promoted later on? Or can we look at whether somebody is in a hard-fought tight election in their electoral district and whether they say more things about their district than they say about grand questions of public policy and so on? Hi there. My name's Danny. I'm fascinated by big questions and cutting-edge research, but over time, I found that a lot of the outlets that explore these ideas really lack a uh, Canadian perspective. So join me as I sit down with some fascinating minds in Canada and together you and I can explore the world around us and some of the really cool work that Canadian thinkers are doing. All right, so I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Dr. Christopher Cochran is an associate professor of political science at the University of Toronto. He's the author of Left and Right, the small world of political ideas. Cochrane and his colleagues run the Linked Parliamentary Data Project, otherwise known as LIPAD, which is digitizing and analyzing the written record of debate in the Canadian House of Commons. Transcripts of Canadian political debate, known as Hansard, dates back 150 years in Canadian history, before even the birth of the typewriter. The LIPAD team estimates that it would take almost 100 years to read all of the records from the House and the Senate, which is why they are now creating the first-ever machine-readable, fully-searchable open database for every single word that's ever been uttered in the House of Commons. They're constantly updating their database, organizing by policy topic, tagging demographic data such as gender, and party affiliation of politicians who've spoken in the House of Commons. I'm really excited to share this episode with all of you. Uh, Dr. Cochran's not only a brilliant mind, but he's a, he's a genuinely nice guy, and... Um, his work is really important. I mean, we're at a turning point when it comes to technology's applications for the way that we live our lives. And I think that what Dr. Cochran and his colleagues are doing um, over at LiPad um, is going to open up a whole new world of possibilities when it comes to the way that we track the information of what occurs in the House of Commons but also how we view and interact with our democratic institutions. So without further ado, uh, here's the episode. Fair warning, we had a few technical difficulties, um, but I've done some edits as well as I've, I've just kept some things in because um, I think you can fill in the gaps. I apologize. You know, internet can be spotty sometimes, uh, but regardless, here's the episode. Hope you enjoy. So I started recording because, I mean, we're already off to a bit of a sprint here and I don't want to lose anything valuable. But, um, you know, your background as a political scientist, did you expect yourself to get so involved in, um, you know, computer science and mapping out the mathematics behind um, how we analyze language from Hansard, from the House of Commons? Not at all, actually. Um, you know, was, um, I, I would even say that if... You, know, you often get the question, if there's one thing you could do, um, you know, could go back in time and change about your program study, what would it be? And the one thing I can actually remember being at sort of the precipice of enrolling in a math program at a different university simultaneously with political science, taking sort of math courses in this program. I thought, oh, you know what, it's, you know, the thought I had was that it was a new area. It would be a bit onerous for me. I didn't want to jeopardize, you know, potentially my GPA. I didn't know how I'd perform. And so I didn't do it. And, um, and I regretted that. And it ended up costing me, I would say, at least a year or two of work 
down the line and just hunkering down and, and trying to get comfortable and, and familiar enough with math to know at least what I was doing and hopefully not make any catastrophically embarrassing mistakes. So I, it, I mean, one of the, one of the, um, you know, one of the challenges is that there's, but for me, I guess the way I kind of came back to math and, and uh, computing especially was that I'd long been interested simultaneously in, you know, what we would sort of call quantitative political science, which was very interesting yeah. to me in early days quantitative political science uh, was not at all like it is now. It's much more sophisticated. Um, but I was also very interested in philosophy. And so I had these in, in psychology and, and sort of you know, the, why people thought the way they thought and so on. And so there came a point in graduate school where you had to sort of choose which one are you going to, which path are you going to take? Are you going to sort right. of pursue a more theory, philosophy oriented or a methods? And there's really, there was really no overlap between them or strikingly little overlap between them. But it's computing i think that's bringing a lot of this back a lot of the connections back and if you think of people who are really leading you know sort of the ai revolution in computer science machine learning revolution in computer science they're very explicitly taking cues from people who are interested in understanding the way the human brain works to use some of the work that's come out of that movement to study politics has just been a great opportunity for me and i think it's of pretty considerable interest to a lot of students that must have been quite the undertaking, um, you know, learning and relearning concepts in applied mathematics and computer science. But you do have quite the interdisciplinary team. Who makes up that team and how did you all come together? Yeah, so it's, um, you know, it was a really, um, I guess, really fortunate for me. I had um, I was on the tenure track and was finishing a, what I consider to be kind of a difficult project on sort of the nature of uh, language as it applied to political phenomena. And I really sort of struggled with that on a, in trying to understand the philosophy of it and, and the language philosophy, which was sort of new to me. Um, you know, I started researching for the book. And so it was a real battle. But I knew in the back of my mind that number one, I had to get the book finished. And number two, that language would be the next thing that was of considerable interest to me for research. And just as I was putting the finishing touches on the draft of the book, uh, Graham Hurst, who's a very distinguished and um, experienced computational linguist from the Department of Computer Science, reached out to me and asked if I'd be interested in collaborating on a project to uh, digitize the um, the Canadian answer at the record of parliamentary debates. And he had talked about some of the projects he'd been trying to do from a natural language processing perspective and some hurdles that he had sort of run into over the course of, um, over the course of that research and asked if I would be interested in helping. And of course I was. So that, that really launched the project and just the opportunity to work with him and to see, I mean, obviously he knows a ton of stuff and, you know, has just done a really a lot of outstanding research in many different areas but just the opportunity to work with somebody who is that experienced and who, you know, had run research teams, you know, for a, for a, a whole career and seeing how he worked and how he interacted with students and how they managed research projects was, um, was uh, extremely influential and was really kind of uh, gave way to the design that uh, this project has had since the beginning. And then from there, it's just unfolded in part by um, pursuing opportunities that emerge when particular people come onto the project. So, I mean, we had an outstanding postdoctoral researcher, um, Casper Bielan, who had, had done work um, 
basically exactly like what we did in Canada, but he'd already done that for his dissertation in Belgium. So that was, um, you know, obviously somebody like that on a project makes life easier for everybody. We had um, uh, Ludovic Rowe join the project, who's a colleague in the Department of uh, Political Science now, uh, who has just outstanding technical skills and very strong commitment to research methods. So again, that was a, um, a windfall for our project. And Tanya White, a PhD student in the program who, um, you know, just really had a kind of an, an eclectic um, set of interests that, that spanned computer science, which I think is probably her, you know, her, her passion, and, uh, and political science as well. And so she was able to do things like develop the back end for the website, develop the interface for the website, and so on. So really just the, the uh, opportunities that became available by virtue of people who joined onto the project allowed us to do things in the project that we never expected to be able to do in the time you know, and with the resources that we had. So you touched on the nature of language, which is something I'm hoping we can really dive into in a little bit. Uh, but it sounds like you have a fantastic team there with you um, doing some really uh, incredible work. What are the milestones that uh, LiPad has achieved so far? As well as the, you know, looking forward, what are the future applications of what you're doing? What are the potential opportunities um, for not only your team, but also the general public? Because I know that this... Um, the data from LiPad is uh, available to the public. So where we're at, uh, we've we have digitized. Um, we well, we've digitized the entire answer going back to 1901. And there's some challenges associated with digitizing it earlier, but it's something we would really like to do, so we can have the full historical record going back to about 1880. And before that, it's a bit of a different format. So, um, but we would really like to get that early historical data because even though it's only a 20-year period it's packed full of really consequential um, debates that shape the future of Canada, probably more so than any other period in Canadian history. So we would really like to get, we would really like to get that. So that's a priority, but where we're at today, we have all of the data from 1901 and we simultaneously, so we have all of the, everything set in parliament um, in the house commons rather, including um, who said it and, and what party they belong to and that sort of thing. And we also have what I would consider to be a, a comprehensive um, authority file of MP bios. So everything that we can get about each of the MPs, uh, you know, when they were born, where they were born, um, what parties they were in, what roles they had, and so on. So we have been able to get that data largely from Parlinfo, which is a, a federal government information service about parliamentary biographies. And we've linked them all together. So we, you know, we've added some additional data recently for things like the demographics of the constituencies that the MPs are in, um, the size of the constituencies, both population-wise and territory-wise. We've also looked at the competitiveness of the districts. So we have all of those data linked together. And now we're just at the process of putting a what I would consider to be a somewhat, not I don't want to say final, because you can never end with this sort of work but to put a fully up-to-date version of all of the data that we have online and also then to make, to make use of that in, in uh, producing papers and, um, you know, things that seemed completely insurmountable and unanswerable to us 10 years ago are now considered low-hanging fruit thanks to these data. So I think we really are sort of turning our focus really at this moment toward from data collection uh, toward the production of, of papers based on these data. Right. And, you know, the sort of categories that you've talked about, what party certain people are from, what riding they're in, 
those kinds of tags, if you will, are, I mean, simple enough to categorize and, and parse out, but where it gets really, really complicating, complicated. And what I really want to dig into is um, the insights that you can then pull from this now massive, massive library of information. And, and I mean, particularly your work in analyzing emotion and sentiment in parliamentary debate. Um, you know, language itself is such a complicated thing, and not even to mention the fact that language in Parliament, in the House of Commons, is uh, very unique in itself. And so um, walk, walk me through a bit of the work that you've done so far in terms of uh, analyzing the nature of language that parliamentarians have used and some of the uh, key insights that you've pulled out so far from uh, the work that you've been doing. Well, we were really interested in, you know, and would have debates over quite a few years, actually, about you know, different things about the nature of language. How is it that language allows us to convey meaning between people about the world? Which is, again, that's a question. It's a huge question. And philosophers and, and psychologists and linguists obviously spend their entire careers focused on trying to answer just that question. Um, and but from a philosophical perspective, this was always something that seemed to be of considerable interest. Just the basic question of you know, does do words take meaning by virtue of corresponding to actual things out there in the world, or do words take meaning by virtue of how they're used in a particular context of a sentence? So in other words, how they fit alongside other words. Right. And then to have a kind of an abstract philosophical debate like that, um, really sort of you know made concrete by a method in natural language processing that was designed to get at the semantics of text with with word embeddings uh, and again it's not like i don't mean it to say that it's simple in the sense of you know that i could have figured it out because I, I i couldn't and didn't but it's one of those ideas that you look at and you realize that the the genius of it is its effectiveness it's not um this sort of extremely esoteric model that only you know, taught mathematicians would be able to understand. It's actually perfectly understandable. It's just an, a, a very um, effective, you know, really typical of an engineer implementation of an abstract idea, which you can then test, see if it actually works on language. So with word embeddings, the assumption would be then that words take meaning by virtue of the way they're used in context. And that if we know how words are used in context, we can understand something about their meaning. And converting words to numbers, I mean, this to me sound, would have sounded like you know, science fiction, um, not that long ago at all. Um, but converting words to numbers and then performing basic arithmetic operations on those numbers and having it spit out results that actually make sense from a linguistic perspective sounds almost absurd. But that's, in fact, exactly what they were showing to be able to do. And, um, and so when we looked at this in the context of the parliament, we were really amazed at how well that worked. And so, you know, that was, um, that was a really significant turning point for our research. And then the application to sentiment. So the study of sentiment in text is, again, we might even say kind of low-hanging fruit when you consider the broad complexity of, um, of computational linguistics as the field. But it was certainly something that political scientists were interested in for quite some time. And there had been some very successful innovations in this area. And so one of the places we thought it might make sense to start was to look at something about speech and text, which we knew already had well-developed methods so that we could determine whether the word embeddings that we were using generated um, results that looked like what we would expect it to look like given these established measures. And we actually found that that's ex even just as simple as 
um, a method that, uh, you know, for each word in a sentence calculates its cosine distance to the word good and subtracts from that its, um, its distance from the word bad. So, you know, in other words, the closer a word is to the word good and the farther a word is from the word bad is some, you know, it sounds like a crude indicator of sentiment but it actually performed better at predicting human judgment than any of the other methods that we'd use. So just this really simplistic um, implementation turned out to generate results, which had a high degree of, of validity. And, and then from there, we're trying to extend it into questions of sort of broader, more general interest to political science. Right. So, you know, if the word good was in three-dimensional space in, uh, you know, one area, um, and then the word bad is in like the complete opposite area, uh, with word embeddings, the distance between, you know, the word that you're examining, say it's the word awful, um, you would measure sort of the distance between that word awful between, I guess, some uh, anchor words, right? Like good and bad. So the word awful would probably be closer to the word bad than the word good in your, you know, three-dimensional space. Um, but how do you deal with, uh, and again, this goes back to the complexity of language, but how do you deal with, um, I think it's better if I use an example, but, you know, if I say something was awfully delicious or awfully good, um, how would your model um, in, you know, when quantifying uh, these words as values, um, how would it account for something like that? Yeah. So, I mean, there's ways that you can try to take that into account. So you can, you know, shift the valence of a word, for example, if the word not appears before it. And we experimented um, you know, we experimented with that. You can also, um, you know, sort of magnify words if the word very appears before it. So there's, there's, you know, established methods in computational linguistics that people use to do that. And we experimented with them and, and in our case found that they didn't really help much, even though it's a really, I mean, I frankly enjoy, it's nice to be able to write papers when you can say, hey, look at all of these complicated things we did. You know, we, you know, we, um, we lemmatize the words, we, use valence shifting and so on. And you do all those things that sounds really sophisticated, but then it actually generates results that are no better than just really sort of looking at the words as they originally were and not doing anything to them with respect to valence shifting or word sense disambiguation, or, you know, again, the same word meaning different things in different contexts and all of these uh, nice sophisticated methods, which I'm sure are extremely important in certain applications. Uh, so for us, we, we don't, we don't explicitly integrate that for the most part, just because it hasn't helped us so far with sentiment. Um, but what it would pick up, what the word embeddings would pick up, for example, would be that the word awfully, if it's used in the term of awfully good, for instance, routinely, would end up being positive, even though the word awful would end up being negative and negatively valenced, I guess, in this um, in this context. And on aggregate, the the method works um, the method works extremely well. So I wouldn't put too much stock in it. Um, you know, in terms of if, you know, human judgment is still, in my view, a gold standard for detecting these things. Um, but the nice thing about the computers, obviously, is that you can process in less than an hour, considerably less than an hour, a volume of text that would take a human 30 years to read. So that's a, that's a, a huge benefit, obviously, of the, of the computational approach. So based on the, I mean, tools like word embeddings that you've been using to analyze uh, language enhancered. What are some of the more interesting things that yourself and your colleagues have uh, kind of pulled away from uh, the work that you've been doing? 
Well, I think, um, and from the sentiment perspective, um, I mean, I would say on the methodological front, just the, the efficacy of word embeddings in, you know, in comparison to other tools that people use for, uh, for detecting sentiment has been, and it's a bit of inside baseball for us, but that's been... So we don't find any evidence looking historically that the uh, civility of political discussions in Canada has declined. So there's really, you know, no matter how we try to look at that or how different people have looked at it, that narrative that it, well, once upon a time, politicians were very, you know, sort of civil and, and respectful of each other. And then all of a sudden that changed. We see no evidence for that whatsoever um, in any of the, in any of the, the analysis that we've done. And for my part, what I'm really interested in is the evolution of ideas, how people come to associate different ideas over time, how these become linked with political parties over time, how tightly packaged different ideas are. So, for example, you know, if somebody is advocating pro-life positions, for instance, are they also supporting, um, you know, tax cuts and that sort of thing? And those are the sort of real opportunities where I see some chance to apply word embeddings to study of, you know, what we might consider to be political ideology. And so we're looking at that. Or abortion and how the discussion of abortion has changed over time. And we're also looking at it in the discussion of immigration and how debates surrounding immigration have changed over time in Canadian politics. And we're not yet at a point where we can, you know, definitively link, um, you know, changes uh, to things like electoral outcomes or anything along those lines, though I think that's ultimately where we'd like to go. But you can clearly see um, in, in the context of immigration, you can clearly see changes over time in how politicians talk about immigration, which I think, again, is you know, understandable and something we might be led to predict given our knowledge of Canadian history. But to actually see it play out enhanced using word embeddings, I think, is intriguing. And with respect to abortion, um, it both, I think, testifies to the limits of the approach that we're using, but also reveals something interesting about the nature of that debate as well, is that that debate is very difficult to pin down with word embeddings because there's so many euphemisms used by people on different sides that it's hard to know. You know, in that case, it's not just that they're disagreeing with each other. They actually have created their own languages to talk about the same thing using also is something we're trying to find a way to address uh, with word embeddings. But I can give you an example um, in the context of immigration, for example, uh, of, of you know, sort of what we're we would really love to be able to get at. So you can imagine, um, you know, when you think of an embedding space as this high dimensional, uh, high dimensional space where the position of a word in that high dimensional space has to do with its sort of likelihood of being used alongside the words that are near to it and inversely related to its likelihood of being used alongside words that are far off in distant places away from it. So you can imagine an embedding space for words and you can imagine an embedding space for ideas or concepts. And what I would really be interested in seeing, for example, would be something like an ability to map a change in vocabulary. So different words are being used, but in a kind of a constant conceptual space so that it's different words being used now for something that still seems to represent the same idea. So um, one example in Canadian history would be, and you know, again, we don't have, certainly don't have peer-reviewed, um, I wouldn't, I mean, we don't even have um, evidence at this point that we would be comfortable sending out for peer review, let alone that sort of pass through peer review. So it's important qualification, but I'll give you an example. Nobody talks about um, immigration anymore and uses the term undesirables. 
it's it's a word that used to be used, and it's a word that would be obviously egregiously offensive if it were to be used in in Parliament today. But there seems to be a semantic space for the concept that the word undesirables used to represent that persists in Canadian political discourse, and now seems to be captured by words like bogus refugees and strippers were the were two words that were associated with it. And at first, that seems strange. Why would you see these two words? But this was a kind of a transition away from, um, you know, talking about immigration in the context of desirables and undesirables toward avoiding the word undesirables altogether, but using certain other words like bogus refugees and, and strippers was a debate, uh, you know, especially in the 90s, for example, as an accusation or, um, you know, not taking up the right kinds of work or whatever from the, from the perspective of certain uh, opposition MPs at the time. And so you can see that the, the change in word, but the conceptual space seems to be the same. And to me, it's an interesting, you know, to, anyway, I was interested to see that this um, dead word, this dead language seems not to have necessarily coincided with a, with a, you know, a dead idea. The idea still stays but the words used to talk about that idea change. And that's exactly the kind of thing I think would be really, really interesting to, to try to develop with word embeddings. Yeah, and I can imagine the, the way to um, sort of model that could be very complex. I mean, if you're um, taking these words that are mapped out as you know, eigenvectors in a 3D space, which is what I'm, uh, which is what uh, word embeddings do. Um, would you apply like a rotational matrix? Would you apply that to certain words over others? Would you, um, how is, uh, how are certain words impacted by the changes that you're making? And then how does it change uh, collections of words that then create meaning? Um, and I think that just goes to uh, the point of how difficult and complex the nature of language truly is. And so. Um, you know, I, I'd be curious as to learn the approaches that you would uh, use to, um, like you said, remain in that sort of same cognitive space, but model for changes of language. Would you have to employ certain complexity science or network science tools uh, because the nature of language and different words associations with one another could very much change if you were to apply a small change to you know, one little word within a larger set. And so uh, that sounds like quite uh, a potential undertaking. I, I understand, I guess, the, um, the conceptual side of things, but the technical side of things, I would imagine, would be quite complicated. Um, Just yeah, as you mentioned, one of the challenges with, um, with using embeddings to try to generate answers to questions like the ones that I was just talking about is that even if you imagine a very simple um, you know two-dimensional space where you have multiple points and you know I think I showed before the, the sort of images of the night sky for example where you have all of the stars and they're more or less in the same spot in successive images you're taking different snapshots of the stars and only one of them is in motion and there's no real reason you know from a for the generating embedding spaces there's no real reason to take a a snapshot from any particular angle because it doesn't change anything about you know your 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 cosine distances for example don't change regardless of the angle that you take a particular picture from so there's nothing in the word embeddings model that fixes the angle so you can get different rotations i guess in other words um in successive snapshots 
And the challenge there is that just like if you take pictures of the night sky, for example, and you're rotating your camera from different angles, and, and let's say one of the stars is moving, well, the only way you could tell if that star is moving is if you had you aligned all of the pictures so that they were effectively taken from different angles and then watched them, you know, sort of snap, snapshot after snapshot. And so yeah, that's just in a scenario where you've got one star moving. And all of the other ones are fixed, and and so you you know you you there's algorithms for aligning um, you know for aligning matrices which you can use and um, and and it would help you in that particular in that particular case. But obviously the problem for us is that you've got first of all all of the stars are moving, so that's one of the challenges, and they're moving because their meanings also are changing. They're moving because there's a stochastic element or an error in in the generation of each of the embedding spaces. So you've got all kinds of fuzziness around the terms, um, and so it's a, it's an extremely difficult task to try to fix the embedding space. Of problems with, as I mentioned before, vocabulary is changing. So words come online. Words fall out, uh, new words come in that weren't there before. And so it's sort of the equivalent if you're trying to align pictures of the night sky of new stars emerging and old ones falling away, let alone all of them moving around. So it's extremely difficult and it was actually precisely the, the challenge that we had. And what we had been doing um, as a kind of a, um, um, you know, on the, I guess on the view that perfection is the enemy of the good, what we had been doing is retraining embeddings on. 10-year moving averages of, of text, or 10-year moving windows, sorry, of text. And then we would look at, um, you know, you might imagine, you know, sampling or taking a set of words which you consider to be relatively fixed, and then looking at how other words have moved relative to those words. So everything is always relational, but you could say, you know, and again, to use an example, we might say something like, the word immigration or the, the stem um, uh, of, uh, of immigration is moving away from the word bad and toward the way of, the word good or something like that at a sort of very um, you know kind of superficial level but one of the ideas that now we are implementing and and we we actually got from um from from dave armstrong at western when we were you know i was there talking to him um it, you know it actually it, it, it basically just has to do with conceding the fact that you can never fix all of these pieces in motion. They don't stop because they're in motion. And that's just a part of the process. But what you can do, instead of generating different embedding spaces and trying to figure out how to align them, what you can actually do is change the words themselves because the computer doesn't care about the meaning of the word. Change the word itself so that you tag the word with um, you know, who said it and when it was said. So the computer sees it as a different word. And then, so, you know, you have, um, you know, immigration, you know, 1945, immigration, 1946, 1947, and so on. Yeah, so change, just change the word immigration in 19, 1945 to immigration with the tag 1945 attached to it. And then do the same for each of the years. And then see afterward in a fixed embedding space, you treat the word immigration, not like one word, but like many different words. And what you end up with are many different words that actually are just that word, but in different years. So you can trace the, the, the movement of the word through the embedding space. And so that's the kind of thing that we're, we're really interested in, in trying to develop. And it's, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a, there is definitely a complexity to it. But sometimes, you know, things or writing especially can seem complicated because it's unclear. 
um, what it is the person or the author is actually saying. And you read something and you think, oh, this sounds really complicated, but actually it's just because you can't figure out what it is they're actually arguing. And then other times um, things sound complicated, even though it's clear what the, you know, what the person is arguing, the language is clear, the words are simple, the sentences are clear, but the ideas themselves are actually extremely difficult to wrestle with. And I would say, for example, I consider Bertrand Russell to be in that latter camp. Every sentence he writes is crystal clear. The words he uses are crystal clear. There's no jargon, but the ideas are actually, you know, sort of difficult to wrestle with for, for mere mortals. And what I find and, and really comforts me a bit about sort of using and studying uh, word embeddings is that when you look at, you know, if you go back to the 1980s and look at the work that Jeffrey Hinton did with colleagues on parallel, um, you know, parallel computing and the early discussion of word embeddings and thinking in neural, of neural nets and so on, it's just a crystal clear demonstration of an argument. And there's nothing about it conceptually or mathematically that makes it opaque. And so it's difficult to wrestle with because these are very intelligent people wrestling with complicated problems, but it's so clear that you can actually think about it and engage with it seriously. And I feel the same way about word embeddings. I mean, some of it is, you know, and this is an extension of obviously those sorts of early, you know, philosophical or those early turns in computer science. Um, but um, when I look at the work on word embeddings, certainly some of it is complicated and sophisticated. So for example, how to generate word embeddings efficiently. That's a, an expertise of computer scientists and engineers. That's something I'll never, and really aren't not interested in, in sort of picking up. But when it comes to, here's exactly what we are showing you with word embeddings, again, the clarity of it. So any of the difficulties come, it seems to me, not from the method and not from our inability to understand the method, but actually just from the complexity of the phenomena itself and our inability or the limitations of our intelligence when it comes to thinking seriously about language. So at least we have a feeling, even if we can't figure things out, that we're not barking up the wrong tree or you know, running headlong down a path that um, makes no sense at all because we know at least the direction we're heading in and we hope to be able to get as far as our intelligence and work ethic can take us. And, uh, and that's you know, kind of a reassuring. I mean, you know you will be limited. You know there's a, a horizon that you're not going to punch through. Somebody else might, but you won't. Um, but at least you know you're, you know you're on the right path and you're on a rewarding path. And I think that's really how we feel with um, using these methods to analyze human language. Right. And the potential applications of the tools that your team at LiPad has created um, are really exciting. I mean, it's helping us better catalog and um, explore uh, Canadian history, well, through the lens of, uh, you know, the House of Commons. Um, you know, today we have video of what's happening in the House of Commons. We can understand the emotion, you know, when a member of parliament stands up and gives a speech in the House. Um, but we don't have that uh, for, you know, years back. It, it's probably more recent than anything that we have that video available to us. Um, so what was emotion and sentiment like for, you know, the prime minister, um, during the first world war, right? We have the transcript of what has been said, uh, through Hansard, which is, you know, the written text. Um, but the written text only shares so much for us when it comes to, uh, emotion and sentiment and can be, uh, understood in so many different ways. 
So Dr. Cochran, what I want to do right now is um, show the audience a bit of a side-by-side of um, why your uh, why your research exploring sentiment and emotion is so important. Um, so we have a clip from uh, a tense <laughs> a point during question period between Member of Parliament Pierre Polyev and Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland. Um, and this is about the renegotiation of, of NAFTA, um, which is now the USMCA, I believe, or the CUSMA. Um, but what I'm going to try to do is read the transcript as monotone as possible um, to sort of mimic, uh, you know, you as an audience member uh, of just reading the plain text. And then I'm actually going to play the audio from the clip. And by comparing and contrasting the two, we can see how important, um, you know, going back in time and trying to pull emotion from written text uh, is. So here we go. Mr. Speaker, as I said, the Conservatives seem to have discovered a lot of Monday morning courage, having counseled us throughout this negotiation that Canada take a softer line. I think Canadians have seen that our government was determined to stand up for the national interest while being fair-minded and seeking reasonable compromise. That is exactly what we have done, and we got a good deal for Canadians. <laughs> that was so ridiculous. I totally could have had uh, had like an, uh, an automated robot or something read that out anyway. Uh, now I'm going to compare it to Chrystia Freeland actually speaking in the House. Yes or no? Yes, yes, yes. Honourable Minister of Foreign Affairs. Yes. Said, Mr. Speaker, the Conservatives seem to have discovered a lot of Monday morning courage, having counseled throughout this negotiation that Canada take a softer line. I think Canadians have seen. So hopefully that, that paints a picture of why tools like word embedding with iPad. Uh, are exactly so useful for us to um, analyze and emotion and sentiment in the history of what has been said in uh, Canadian Parliament. Um, so, Dr. Cochran, uh, there are a lot of potential applications, like we've said before, of LiPad. Um, but what are the other things that you're playing around with and that uh, that you're curious about? Well, some of the things involve, um, you know, recently, for example, we've looked at who gets access to the floor in the House of Commons, what determines how often a member gets to speak on the floor of the House. And those are questions which are, you know, of interest in general to the study of comparative legislatures, for instance, because there is a debate about how political parties, or for that matter, who allocates speaking time in the House, but also given we know who it is, how they allocate it. So do they, you know, reward people who agree with them? Do they consider, for example, um, the proximity of an election, um, you know, or how close the, the election is going to be for a particular member? I mean, are those the kinds of things they consider? So those are things that we've looked at uh, recently and, and even other differences. For example, are there gender differences in access to the floor? Is it the case that men speak, um, you know, more than women and so on? So those are uh, what I would consider now to be questions that we would call lower hanging fruit in the sense that they're very accessible to us given our data, but that 10 years ago we wouldn't have been able to even imagine being able to answer in any kind of feasible time horizon. So that's the thing that we're, those are the kinds of questions that we're really kind of focused on getting out now. And other things, I mean, looking not just on how much you, how much access you get to the floor, but also what are the kinds of things that you talk about, for example? Um, can we, for instance, look at 
connections between how often somebody speaks as an MP and whether they get promoted later on? Or can we look at whether somebody is in a hard-fought tight election in their electoral district and whether they say more things about their district than they say about grand questions of public policy and so on. So those are all questions that we are in a position to start to be able to answer now with the data, and, and we're sort of really looking forward to being able to do that. And I'd say that one thing about the project is that no matter how big our research team gets or how many um, you know students or researchers or colleagues are involved, we can only scrape the surface of what's possible with the data. And a lot of the interest in the data and a lot of use of the data is from historians and humanists and digital humanists and, and linguists and others, and they are going to take it in directions that we would never even imagine taking it. So a, a big priority of the project from the get-go has been ensuring that it's publicly available and that people can get the data that we have as soon as we get it, basically, and just kind of getting it up online. And, and we've benefited a lot from kind of open data initiatives, so getting our data out for people to use. Um, and when I put it up, to be honest, I might have expected, I should say we, we put it up, it was, it was uh, um, you know, I had a kind of an ambition to do a website, but um, like a lot of ideas people, I didn't have the technical skills to be able to carry it out. So, uh, but fortunately, Tanya White, who was on our team as a PhD student, did have the technical skills to carry it out and had the passion to, to put it all together. So, um, but when, when it was launched and I sort of, you know, was floating the idea of a website, I thought we might get we might get 10, 20 users a month, right? I mean, just students or researchers who had an interest in looking this. And, you know, we were we were at about 16 to 1800 unique users a month when the data went up and it was used um, a lot more extensively than I anticipated. It got a lot more attention than I think any of us expected it to get. And so even though the project itself was focused mainly on the creation of effectively a text file, which could then be linked to, um, you know, to a, an XML um, file, which would contain biographical information and other data about parliamentarians. This was it. That was the linked data project. I think it was the website that really extended the reach of the project, um, um, not just for people who want to analyze the data in the way that we do, but also for people who are going to make entirely different uses of uh, of the data that we've um, that we've digitized. So. That's been a really important um, important part of the project. So we're focused in a few lanes, but there are people doing things with the data that is, um, you know, beyond and in different directions than than we will we will ever be able to go. Um, so I do want to jump back and um, give a few more examples about word embeddings because that's something uh, that was discussed a lot and I think is really really fascinating. Um, but I want to go over a few of the successes and failures that your team has found um, working with word embeddings and trying to see what your program spits out um, when it comes to working with the words that have been projected onto your 3D space. Um, and, and I have a list in front of me here that you've put together, um, but I just want to walk through some of them and I, and I, you know, I would love to sort of discuss them a bit further. Um, so some of the successes, uh, Toronto minus Ontario plus Alberta equals Edmonton. Uh, another one is um, Tokyo plus China minus Japan equals Shanghai. Uh, and then another is war plus bravery minus evil equals valor. Um, and then some of the failures, failures that you've noted are really, really interesting. Um, we have king minus man 
plus woman equals lion. That's L-Y-O-N. Um, and my favorite one is oil minus pipeline plus train equals gravy. Um, so I'd love to discuss more about, you know, the insights that these successes and failures uh, provide to your team over at LiPad. Yeah, so we, I mean, we, um, you know, one thing I would say about that is it was a comment we actually got at, um, at a, we were presenting it at a conference and somebody made a very good point, which was that often when people use word embeddings, they, they sort of choose examples that are designed to illustrate the efficacy of it. So the canonical example, right, is king minus man plus woman equals queen. So the, the algorithm and the embedding space is, is able to figure out that semantic association between king and queen with respect to man and woman. But, and again, this is, you know, one of those cases where I guess you have to some ways take the researcher at the word, but I sat down and in maybe 15 minutes generated all of the successes and failures that are listed and just started to put them through an almost stream of consciousness to see what would come out to the other side. And there were a couple that were completely and totally nonsensical, but for the most part, it was just a matter of spitting out things that came to mind that were of interest at the time. And just as a way of illustrating some examples of where it succeeds and where it fails. So for us, um, you know, for example, in in the Google News corpus, um, king minus man plus woman equals queen, which is the sort of finding that everyone talks about when when word because it was the one that um, Nicole Avenal uh, used in their paper when they were showing how well their model worked. It was uh, an example that they provided, um, but enhanced it doesn't really work because there's the domain specific property of enhanced discussion in Canada, which is that we had William Lyon Mackenzie King as a prime minister. So, um, you know, Lyon Mackenzie King and the fact that the computer was reading those understandably as separate words is what I think was linking King with Lyon. So it was just, again, it was different than what you would, what you might intend. And then with respect to pipelines, I mean, some of those are, you know, really interesting. You know, you see that, um, you know, I, I forget, forget exactly the the um, the how I specified it in the in the paper, but you see that you know lobsters end up essentially being the potatoes of the ocean, right? I mean, it's again, this is just a computer algorithm figuring this stuff out on the basis of how humans talk about things, right? It's got no other information, it's got no context, none of that. So it's linking these things together as food, for instance, even though really the only thing it has to go on are the embeddings. So some of the failures um, in, in the case of the uh, the gravy train, it was expecting something like pipeline or super tanker or something like that. But because people kept using the expression gravy train, it became this sort of uh, you know idiosyncratic or domain specific uh, association that meant that we wouldn't be able to just apply um, um, you know, uh, pre-trained embeddings. We, we thought we might not be able to just apply pre-trained embeddings from say Google News and apply them to answer to make sense of it. So that's sort of what we were leaning toward with the failures. We've tested that in the context of sentiment later and found that pre-trained embeddings actually work extremely well, almost as well as uh, locally trained embeddings. And in that respect, there's a, a number of papers that have also found the same thing in entirely different contexts. So I think the verdict is that if you have an extremely large corpus, um, that you can train embeddings. It takes a time to do. But once you train those embeddings, they will work even in, um, you know, sort of domain specific contexts where the language and some of the particularities of languages might be a bit, um, you know, more idiosyncratic. Yeah. And, you know, 
some of these quote unquote failures are actually quite useful and they tell you more about the way that politicians think, the more uh, about how they write or how their staff writes the things that they'll say in the House of Commons. Um, and it's really fascinating. I know uh, another thing that was pointed out was, you know, the terminology, the, the words uh, young cattle was associated to talking about immigrants in the House of Commons. And I mean, that's a fascinating insight into how politicians have spoken about Canadian immigrants um, and the similarities of the language that they use when talking about different things, like in this case, livestock. Yeah. And it's a, I mean, it's obviously a really crass, you know, sort of association if, if it's done, and no one would do it explicitly, to my knowledge, no one has ever done it explicitly in the house. But it's interesting that the computer picks that up and recognizes that certain patterns of speech in terms of how politicians are talking about immigrants historically are similar to how politicians are also talking about um, um, young cattle uh, historically. So, you know, things that you sort of bring into a farm to sort of keep the farm going, right? And this sort of idea of needing a constant influx to keep the thing going. I mean, again, that's not something anybody has said. Um, that's something that the computer has picked up in terms of a, of a similar kind of semantic association. And those are also things, I mean, I think, you know, obviously human judgment comes into play when we're looking at it, interpreting it. And we certainly you know, there's this distinction, and I think it's a difficult one in computer scientists debate whether it's a it's a useful one. But this debate debate between supervised and unsupervised, um, you know, classification, and supervised versus unsupervised models. So one is you know, heavily influenced by human judgment, and the computer essentially extends human judgment and applies it. The other is the computer supposedly comes up with its own judgment based on certain parameters, and then it applies it in very limited human intervention, and in the past, the word embeddings model has been talked about as non-supervised, and some would say maybe a better term is self-supervised, but I think it's really kind of a mixed um, a method because at the end, when you look at the results, there is always some interpretation that's going on there. And sometimes failures, at least I look at them and I can't make sense of them at all. So you might get an answer that's like Huffington Post. And you're like, okay, that has nothing to do with anything here. So that just seems to be a kind of a random error. Um, and there are limits, obviously, because you only have so many dimensions. But then other times, you know, when you think of the example of linking uh, immigration to cattle, you, you think, okay, that's ridiculous. That's a random error. And then you think, okay, why is it associating it in that way? What is, what is the computer finding that I wasn't thinking about in how politicians are talking about some phenomenon? And so you look at it and then maybe um, it, it starts to make sense when you actually consider sort of how the computer is seeing language completely immune to any uh, social conventions that um, that might otherwise interfere with your seeing something in a particular way. And the other example that we used in the success and failures, uh, which I think is interesting, is that when we looked at, um, you know, Israel uh, plus uh, uh, Islam, for example, and in the Google News corpus, you saw um, Palestine, but in the uh, Canadian uh, House of Commons corpus, you saw Hezbollah. And so the fact that this was sort of how, you know, parliamentarians were talking about um, Israel and the connection to Islam and so on gives insight about how, you know, sort of the, the, the way that they were thinking about, um, you know, that, that particular issue. And those are the kinds of insights, I think, that these methods, I wouldn't say that they, you know, can confirm or that they can generate, but that they can certainly seed 
And when you think about it and consider and maybe go back and look at the record, it, you know, it, it may, again, give you a different vantage point on um, things you might have read entirely differently. So in the era of COVID-19, we're seeing some rapid changes in the way that our society operates, you know, from the modality of our everyday work life, you know, my office is now my bedroom or my living room, uh, to the way our public institutions operate. You know, government uh, is now allowing uh, videoing in for court appearances. There's a much more nuanced conversation around digital identity um, and privacy, particularly in the realm of healthcare. Um, so what does the LiPad team hope comes out of uh, their work um, in terms of, you know, how we as everyday folks interact with our public institutions um, and our elected officials to, you know, government itself um, in the way that it operates? Yeah, so we're not, um, you know, certainly for us, we, we aren't, um, you know, me specifically, I guess, not in a position to sort of drive that um, you know, that agenda. Um, we're on the consuming side of that much more than the production and the innovation side. We're on the consuming side entirely, I would even add. But yeah, I think to myself, look, you know, look at what we were able to do with an initial budget of about $100,000. Um, you know, and, and again, and that goes to student researchers and uh, people who are learning themselves as they, and this is a part of what the, the, the funding is designed for. And, you know, and then you ask what you could imagine a major organization or a government with millions of dollars at its disposal and the capacity to hire all kinds of consultants and experts, what it should be able to do with respect to data um, and just making things more accessible. And obviously, it goes without saying there have been huge strides, right? In, government is much more online. There are things you can do now that you, you can do online that you could never do before. And sometimes you, you know, renewing your driver's license or um, you know, something like that just becomes surprisingly easy compared to what it used to be like, right? Filing taxes. I mean, all of these sorts of examples. But the Canadian government has been, an, um, you know, for some time, a bit of a laggard, it seems to me, on the world stage among OECD countries in terms of the quality of the data that it makes available. It's some of it has been for a long time uh, behind paywalls, which is, I think, ridiculous for a government to put public data behind paywalls. But it was beyond paywalls for many, many, many years, I think up until maybe five or maybe almost 10, but not that far. I don't think years ago it was behind paywalls. It's still difficult to access. Sometimes in some places you get data and it's really easy to use. And then other times it's in a completely unusable format and just seems to be extremely difficult to work with. And I think that just shouldn't happen. I mean, it, it, you know, getting good quality data out to the public is, it seems to me, an excellent way of decentralizing one of the biggest challenges that anybody faces working with data now, which is just the sheer volume of data. Um, and so if, if the government makes data available and it makes things accessible to people, um, yeah, I think it's going to have a, a significant benefit um, you know, for the government itself, but also obviously I think it's important in this day and age for, for Canadian society. So the, the accessibility of the data, the quality of the data, the clarity and transparency of the data, the data that governments are using to inform decision-making and the analysis so far, making all of that as public as possible, I think is, is extremely important. We've fallen behind. I think, you know, to some degree computing infrastructure seems to be outdated. Um, and again, this is from an outsider's perspective, and, and I know it's catching up, but um, 
But um, I think it's a, it's an important investment and something that government ought to consider spending money on. So that's a, it's an easy thing to cut. It's an easy thing to waste, especially if governments are thinking in five-year windows, right? Is, you know, how we can we cut funding to balance budgets in a particular time frame? And obviously, governments are understandably concerned about delivering services to the public and diverting funding to, you know, the, the production or the dissemination of government data might not seem a high priority. But I think it has long-term benefits that um, that um, at some point we are either going to to um, you know, to, to reap or, or not. And, and certainly other countries are doing well. The United States does well. European jurisdictions often have definite outstanding data infrastructure and, and just Canada just hasn't been up to that standard. Great. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap up. But before we let you go, um, I'm curious, you know, what is something right now that you're following, something that you're curious about? Maybe it's something you're reading, something you're watching. Um, that's kind of occupying your mental space right now. Yeah, so a colleague of mine um, downtown, Ludovic Rowe, who was is involved in this project as well, is working and just doing some really, he's got his hands in many different, um, in many different pots because he's a you know, very sort of um, productive and, and a collective, collective thinker. But he's working with engineers and others on trying to detect emotion in speech and also trying to detect it in video. And, um, you know, one of the things certainly that anybody who has had to or chose to um, watch parliamentary speeches delivered would be able to tell you is that there is a stark difference in many cases between the emotion conveyed by the speaker, many times it's very authentic, and you can tell that they what they're saying is their genuine emotions, or at least it's an outstanding performance. On the one hand, versus in other cases where people are reading um, a very emotion laden um, statement, but doing it with no emotion whatsoever, so you can tell again it's not felt. Um, and understanding when people are being genuine and when they're not being genuine with respect to the communication of emotion or the expression of emotion seems to me is very important. And so to the degree that we're able to use things like intonation, facial expressions, body language, and other things to be able to discern whether or not somebody is saying something genuinely or not, I think is a, is a really um, a really excellent research agenda that I, I think is going to bear, even if it doesn't entirely succeed, it's still going to get us a lot further than where we are now in terms of a kind of an effectively intelligent computational analysis of political communication. And that's um, something that I'm extremely interested in and I'm watching very closely to see where that, um, where that ends up going. That's super interesting because everyone has a very different baseline of emotions and they have a different range of emotions, right? And um, some people are, are expressive with their face. Some people are more expressive with their hands or, you know, their entire head. Um, very cool. Uh, well, Dr. Chris Cochran, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Um, I really appreciate your time. And I mean, the work that you and your colleagues are doing is just so, so fascinating to me and, and really exciting. So thank you for your time. Great, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Good luck with the, good luck with the show moving forward. That's the show. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Stage 2 Podcast with me, Danny. You can contact me at stage2podcast at gmail.com if you have any comments and questions. That's stage2podcast at gmail.com. Uh, the number two, not the word. 
Music for this episode was created by my good friend, Toronto-based musician Chris O'Day. That's O-D-A-Y, first name Chris. Check him out anywhere you get your music. The song from this episode is entitled Complicated. The artwork for this show was created by my good friend Gladys Ng, and her portfolio can be viewed at gladysng.ca. That's spelled G-L-A-D-Y-S-N-G dot C-A. If you like what I'm doing here on the show, please rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The show is made possible through my free time and money, so if you'd like to chip in through the tip jar found in the show notes, that money goes directly back into hosting and streaming the show. That's it for me. Thanks so much for listening. But now we just got complicated.